Friends, welcome to Hit Different, your weekly music culture podcast with me, Mikey Carl, Marcus Teague, and today, Jack Ladder, aka Tim Rogers, aka a man drinking some blackjack, some black coffee in the morning. How are you, sir? Very well, thank you, Mikey. Thanks for having me. Garuvi. Oh, it's good to be had. Everyone loves being had. You've been had! Coming up on this episode, we're talking about the Travis Scott Astro World disaster. And I, Marcus Teague, am going to be talking about regionalism in music and maybe a little bit of food. What is it? Is it good? Have the internet killed it in Australia? And we'll be speaking to an O-regional, that is Jack Ladder, about this incredible six-album career. He just keeps swerving and dipping and we're getting right into his uh, his back catalogue and his brain. So it's going to be bloody lovely. I'm very excited about this, gentlemen. <laughs> Let us continue. Oh, support Hit Different, another mushroom podcast covering Australian music by becoming a subscriber. It's going to cost you less than the coffee Jack Ladder's currently drinking, Black Jack. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts. Check out the episode notes. You get early access, ad-free episodes, and anything else we can pull together and smush right into your sexy ears. Free trial on Apple, only $1 for the first month. Everywhere else, then $4 per month after that. Right. Now, it's been a bit of a heavy, heavy week because Travis Scott, rapper, iconoclast, uh, held a concert in Houston called Astroworld, which has left eight people dead, 23 injured, hundreds with PTSD of nearly dying or watching others die. The whole thing feels entirely avoidable. It's such a senseless loss of life. Travis Scott also has form in this area. He's been found guilty of inciting a riot. Previously, this is from Rolling Stone. Uh, his Netflix documentary, Look Mum, I Can Fly, shows people being hauled from crowds at his shows by security staff and, pan- and paramedics. It also features the scene where Scott runs from the stage in Ar- Arkansas when he realizes police are at the venue. He's arrested and eventually pleaded guilty dis- disorderly conduct for inciting a riot at the concert. I cannot understand, gentlemen, why there was no D barrier at an event like this where everyone gets very excited. Drake was on stage as well, within people rushing the stage. You know, crowd surges have been happening since the 15th century. These, we, we know we, surely we're smart enough to be able to get out ahead and stop these things happening. Um, in Australia, after the big day out disaster with, with Jess Mihalik, uh, the Limp Biscuit concert in 2001, ever since then, ever since the loss of her life, we've had D barriers at big events. So it's just stupid that this uh, has not occurred. What else can I tell you? I can tell you that um, the Houston Police Chief Troy Finner said he met with Scott and his head of security for a few moments prior to the event to express his concerns about safety. There's footage of Travis Scott as well, like on a cherry picker during the concert, seeing people getting dragged out unconscious, and he stopped briefly, and then he'll keep going. And at no stage does he say, everyone calm down, everyone calm down. Um, I've had plenty of experiences in, in pretty hectic crowds. Jack, what's your sort of experience and, and background with you know in these kind of sort of perilous situations? Uh, I had... Uh, a formative experience. I went to the big day out once in my life and I was in the mosh pit with um, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Mm. I think it was like 1999, Sydney big day out. And um, that collapsed and I was um, stuck in it. And I had to, cr- I crawled out of my Chuck Taylors 
and uh, <laughs> and witness the carnage, and, and I had to go home barefoot. It was a very strange experience, a lot of foreign smells. I mean, I remember that thing, guys would just sort of push past you and lift up their arms and sort of rub their sort of armpit smell on you to sort of get to the front. But for my concerts, I've never really had much problem. With, uh, <laughs> it's true, it's true. I mean, once I think, but Bondi, um, we played at a beach road hotel in Bondi, and uh, there was a, a rowdy guy who was trying to get on stage, and, and Kieran promptly fly kicked him. Oh, really? I'd like yeah. to see a Kieran Jake Helen in a uh, roundhouse or a fly kick. <laughs> Did he get him flush? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, they didn't carry him out. He was fine. He just sort of. It was in the spirit of things. I think also, Tim, like me, you're tall. You're taller than me. Mm. Six five, mm. six six, I'd say. Yeah, I'm about six six. Which it took me a while when I was starting to go to gigs when I was younger to realize that my vantage point is very different from most people's. And mm. that um, it affords you sort of like a bit of a luxury of just being able to, well, breathe <laughs> and and kind of take things in i remember going to i don't know it must have been like an early kind of like one of my first big concerts and being packed in and then looking down and realizing that there was a girl in front of me and her head was kind of just at my chest and she was essentially Whoa. enjoying the show yeah. like it wasn't it wasn't like a you know uh, a dangerous situation or anything but she was she'd obviously paid to enjoy this show and her version of enjoying the show was essentially looking at the roof and the lights and kind of listening to the music, but without actually being able to see the band. And mm. I think when you're younger, you take it for granted that um, as a tall male, certainly, in, that you get to see and just, you know, see the show that you paid for and enjoy the show that you, you kind of paid for. And it took me a while to realize that that's not the case for everybody and that it could be... And so when I finally had that <clears throat> happen to me in terms of like a intense crowd situation i think it didn't really happen until there was one year when the big day out introduced that um like tea kind of barrier i guess but you had to get through it through this real bottleneck i don't know if that was the same for that mm. chili peppers one that you're referencing so there was no crush except for ironically where this tea bottleneck happened so you had to go through the crush so that you didn't have to deal with the crush once you were in which is very silly. Yeah. And anyway, I remember going through there with my partner and all of a sudden, you know, people starting to fall over and we're clasping fingers between like a mash of people trying to hold on to each other and finally got through after probably about 45 minutes. But it was that was the first time that I remember being scared that, okay, I don't have any control over the weight of my body or where my feet are at this point. So mm. it's up to the communal mindset of the crowd to decide you know what's going to happen now and it all it would have just taken a few people for to fall over for that to be a real situation it sounds like that's kind of what's happened in this situation a little bit but also spurred on by the performer who mm. is i'm i'm no travis scott fan or expert but from what i can tell you know he's made a name for himself for, for being having pretty wild shows live show so it's sort of like baked into his performance that everyone you know the danger happens and the dangerous the dangerous things happen well, his biggest track is called sicko mode so yeah 
Yeah. yeah. Which and that, that 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 can occur and that that can be fine without this, you know, without putting lives in peril. What happened to these people? Is what I I'm suffocated. Intrigued. Yeah. They suffocated. Yeah, just sort of just tra- was that trampled. was that jammed. Yeah, it was that jammed. And oh, if God. you look at the footage as well, it's so full on. It's just like a tidal wave of humans. It really is. It's mm. just this, you know, this yeah. incredible sort of surge. And in the past, Foo Fighters, Adele, Linkin Park, Chili Peppers at that perhaps at that Sydney big, big day you were at as well. Mm. And they stopped the show yeah. at the drive-in, stopped, stopped yeah, the show in did. Sydney, and, and just went off stage because they could just see people were being fuckwits. And mm. you know, we all need to, especially when we're teenagers and. You, you know, we need to get these things out of our system and we have all that sort of angst and all that kind of stuff, which is which is a-okay, but we need to have space to do that in and, um, you know, organisers of festivals and artists and security guards. I think if, if one of the three of those, and, and, and of course, crowds as well, need to be good to each other. If, if one of those four components, if someone's not doing their job, you know, we, we all need to need to be looking out for each other. So, I mean, there's some footage as well of, of a girl. I mean, you saw it at the Travis Scott Astro World going up to a cameraman and kind of shaking the cameraman going, there's someone dead down there. And the guy's like, hey, get away kind of thing. He doesn't sort of see, okay, this is a problem. I need to radio people, et cetera. And, yeah, it's just it's just a really, really gnarly time. And So, there were 50,000 people there apparently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All the other bands played on different stages and Travis Scott had his own stage mm. built for mm. his performance and that there was a, a counter that counted down once he was ready to come on stage mm-hmm. which i guess in the eyes of a performer you would think you were building anticipation or whatever mm. but also it's a time bomb i can imagine how that fires people up to push forward to get there in time before yes. the counter goes off mm. so there's that aspect and also the fact that it just seems like it was really understaffed yeah so yep. When yeah. shit starts going down, there's not enough people or medics to kind of deal with the situation. Then mm-hmm. everyone freaks out. Oh, I, I saw the the sort of um, art direction of the festival, and it's you know Travis Scott. You sort of enter through his hell mouth, <laughs> which is quite frightening <laughs> in context. You know, yeah, it's like taken from like Hieronymus Bosch. It painting feels that way, doesn't it? True. Of, um, you know, the, like entering into hell. Yeah. Essentially, and he had that T-shirt that was, you know, um little people coming through a porthole turning into devils and stuff. There's yeah. a lot of weird iconography that surrounds it. Foreshadowing. Yeah, everyone's been locked down, so everyone wants this experience and they want to be up the closest, etc. But mm. he can could have mitigated all this by saying, hey, things are going to get crazy tomorrow, but they don't yeah. have to get that crazy. Yeah, the whole thing is, yeah. uh, it's. I mean, irony being he did a, a show during lockdown in Fortnite. So he did a, a, a yeah. performance w- within you know the video game and no one got hurt then. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. Uh, I watched a bit of yeah, that. Yeah, it was great. You know, I've got I've got a lot of time mm. for his his music, and no one needed Biff Tannen's Almanac to see that this is going to happen. You know, I think it's uh, mm. yeah, it's pretty rank. Live Nation's shares dropped five percent. There's going to be a bunch of lawsuits that have already been filed as well, and more and more stuff is coming out just about uh, how much there was this encouragement of violence and a motivation for profit at the expense of concert goers' health and safety. That's um, yeah, it's from a concert goer, Manuel Souza. So, everyone listening out there, we want you all to be very, very safe and looking out for each other, and also you know, advocating for for these kind of safer spaces and change within our industry because it could have happened here. You know, let's let's not be naive. Friends, coming up in segment two. Original. Originalism. What is it? Is it good? Have we slash the internet killed it in Australia? 
It's going to be led by Marcus T with some incredible insight from, uh, I'm calling him Jack Letter. Marcus is calling him Tim Rogers. Just don't call him late for dinner. All right, friends, let's get into it. Marcus. All right, this is a bit convoluted, so go with me. Martin Douglas is a US journalist and digital content producer for KEXP, which is the awesome Seattle radio station, which also does a lot of great live videos for touring bands. Anyway, I was reading an interview with him where he talks about the concept of regionalism and his perspective was that he loves being able to tell a place by its music, its buildings or its dialect. And part of that idea was that in journalism, it's always the big mastheads that, you know, get all the kudos essentially, like the Pitchforks and the New York Times or whatever. Enemy Australia. (laughs) But, But that it's... At a grassroots level, it's the experts in different cities and towns that shape the voices of those cities that that then go on to perhaps influence the mainstream or whatever. And so he loves being tuned into that kind of thing because it's almost like a more kind of accurate representation of what's happening around the country and around the world, that sort of thing. And it made me think about how I grew up in Frankston at a time when bands like every band seemed to be super into like Mr. Bungle and Pearl Jam. Yes. And all those, every band sounded exactly like that. And I didn't really understand it because that wasn't really my, my <laughs> thing. But I was just like, all right, I guess that's what music, local music is because I didn't know any better. And then, but obviously kind of like start going to see more bands in the city, as we called it, in Melbourne. And then recognizing at the time that, a city like Geelong, which is very similar to Frankston, just on the other side of the, of the bay, very similar socioeconomic background, similar infrastructure, you know, almost a mirror image in a lot of ways of Frankston, was very much producing like garage rock and punk bands almost exclusively. And it took me a while to go, oh, right. You know, there's different kind of like almost regional accents with with music and bands and that sort of thing. Magic Dirt were very, you know, the, that Detroit sound, as they call it. Yeah, and warped and bored and all those kind of like <laughs> intense things. You like that, didn't you? G-Troy, you like that. <laughs> G-Troy's <laughs> great. Lather, lather got I can't tell whether he's 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 uh, taking the piss out of it or into it. <laughs> Can does that make Frank? No, I like does that. that make Frankston F. Troy? Go again. <laughs> <laughs> Frank stoned. What do you remember from the town that you grew up in? In terms of what what was the kind of dominant music at the time? I grew up in Avalon in on Sydney's northern beaches and you know it was primarily music that was in surf videos mm. and so I think a lot of it at the time was that Cali punk kind of like no effects blink 182 and then the, the the sort of then it was infiltrated by the the Swedish thing like and Colin, Colin yeah and and, <laughs> and uh and it was at the hives, you know. I remember we'd get those fat records oh, yeah. compilations at the local fat music records. store, Spot Music. So look, fat records, yeah, fat records, and uh, and I think they were very influential in the area, and and that seemed different because when I I went to school and um, kids were more there were more into um, what was happening, m- more. Uh, like tumbleweed or um, mm. more indie rock stuff, I guess, is, is how you describe it. And the cool kids were, you know, into like Sonic Youth and cool kid music. Was there a venue in Avalon? No. I mean, there was a 
a hall and I, I think um i remember going to a, like one concert there and it was um down by law or something yeah one of those you know sort of american pop punk bands and it was a big deal everyone came out i remember i got a six pack of vb and drank two of them in the sand dunes and probably fell asleep did you have a large wallet chain did i have a wallet chain i probably had a wallet chain at a certain point i i I progressed through that pretty quickly yeah that sort of scene did you did you watch the band down by law i watched a little bit it wasn't you know they weren't my favorite band i remember going to to kangaroo rock was the um kangaroo it was in manly it was a um youth hall and i remember seeing uh millen colin like play maybe living end was the support band or something you know that was the scene though there wasn't really people weren't interested in music outside of that would have been hard to go to hear a band and go oh they're an avalon band yeah there weren't really the bands i'm i think phil from grinspoon um lived across the road from my friend at avalon for a while right and that was i think you know when grinspoon started that was kind of a big deal yeah but you know it was it was not it wasn't anything else yeah and then i think you know angus and julia stone came out of avalon and that um became a big deal for the local community but they weren't that interested in Kieran and I as, as local members of the local, community. Your local members, Kieran J. Callaghan and Jacques Ladder. So with all this music bubbling around you, um, was there anything that you sort of went, yeah, I want to have a bit of that for my sound? Oh, I think in, in high school, you know, I just listened to everything. I, I was quite technical about music and I went through that and then I got into, you know, Primus and Red Hot Chili mm-hmm. Peppers and that kind of music, you know kind of crazy music that kids mm. like and then out of that sort of went into jazz oh yeah I, I got i was in the school jazz band quintet and listened to miles davis and john coltrane and got into that stuff so that really took me to another world outside of the the, the pop punk thing quite quite early and quite quickly i was thinking about this regional stuff and then i saw a, this tweet thread yesterday from adam law the chef and he was talking about how in the, in the 1960s, the Japanese government started a one-town, one-dish initiative, which encouraged local areas to develop regional foods to boost domestic tourism, which seems like a mm. smart idea. Oh. And he, he said that 60 years later, and domestic tourism in Japan is strong because of this, you know, Hokkaido tart and, mm. Uh, mm. you know, different, different... I love that. that yeah, awesome? and, and that mm. he pointed out that this issue with domestic tourism in Australia, everywhere you go, there's a wine region. Everywhere you go, you got to go mm. to this Mediterranean fine diner. Like we all kind of like vouch for the same things, this monoculture mm. around Australia as we, as we sort of travel and that we've forgotten perhaps the lure of these regional kind of towns expressing themselves and he, he kind of threw out this idea of what would they be? What would, what would be the, um, the city based delicacies that you could travel to experience. And one of the ones was, I think in Adelaide, the pie floater Yep. in Melbourne, the magic coffee, magic coffee, which the magic coffee, magic coffee is, Oh God, I've got to remember now. All of it's magic until you have the third one. And then you're fucked. That's just me anyway. Mm. Two shots and three quarters milk, I think. The the takoyaki I had in Osaka, the best octopus balls are in Osaka. I remember having them. I was like, this is correct. Yes. Takoyaki. They made me quite sick, those octopus <laughs> balls. You make me sick. There's a limit. 
There's a limit to how many you can consume. I went to a um a pork sashimi place in Osaka, mm. which was quite terrifying because my ah. girlfriend and I at the time we were looking for a vegetarian place, which is very difficult to find. We went into this place. We were like, "Oh, it looks cool. Look like lots of young people here. They're going to have something that she can eat." And we sat down, and the menu was in Japanese, and I couldn't understand anything. And as I looked around, I started to see these snouts in everything. <laughs> so the 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 timber, you know, the raw wood bar had been sculpted with a little snout in it, and the salt and pepper shakers <laughs> had little snouts. Oh, a temple. Yeah. And I don't know if that's. I've never seen that anywhere else. Whether that was a local、Rawish、thing,、pork. just to have like、mm. raw pork without.、Uh, Basically, without derailing where we're going, I, for thirty seconds, Jack, can you can you take us into a, a story? I remember, I think I remember you telling me a story of an ex-girlfriend, and you were in France, and Michel Gondry was there, and he was like making some moves on、uh, your partner, and then he did something. Is this you? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, that was in New York. Speaking of regions, New York. Ah <laughs>、uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't understand, but she was telling me that she was. I just met her, and she was really good friends with Michel, and she'd been to some. Movie premieres with him, and I was like, "Oh yeah, you and Michelle, interesting." <laughs> and、um, she's like, "I, I really want you to meet him.、Um, he's a really great guy." And so I went with her to a cafe in Brooklyn, in in Williamsburg, and I think he was buying some jewelry from her. And I got there, and、um, and he was seemed really put out. And she introduced me. I was like, "Oh, I think it was like an iced coffee place." I was like, "Do you guys want some coffee?" And he was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I'll have a coffee." So I was buying everyone coffee, and I'm sort of like the nobody. And then I brought it back to the table, and he made a weird move as I put it on the table and sat down and kind of jumped up and tipped the coffee, and it all spilt on me. <laughs> and he was like, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry." <laughs> and then later that night, he sh- I was out, and he showed up at her apartment, and and. Was、uh, knocking on her door, trying to get in. Wow!、Mm. Michelle co- Gondry, creep.、Yeah. Michelle Gondry. Yeah, <laughs> heard you、in. heard it here. But I mean, I mean, he. I think he had allegedly pretty wild, wild reputation. Yeah, yeah. I just love the the coffee, the the hit hitting coffee, different.、Uh, thank you for that story, Marcus. Continue. <laughs> well, great segue, actually. So, a, a magic coffee is three quarters milk and a piccolo. So it's a piccolo with three quarters milk.、Sounds、anyway, I'm not sure. If, I'm not sure if someone would travel to Melbourne to experience that. But actually, one of he said that Adam Law said that the Sydney version would be a tiger pie. Do you know what a tiger pie is? No. What's in a tiger pie? A tiger pie I've just googled is an Australian meat pie topped with mashed potato, mushy peas, and gravy. It's、oh, uh, like a shepherd's pie. I guess so. Yeah. That's what they sell at like Cafe Harry's Cafe de Wheels. That's exactly what it is. It、Boom. comes from、yeah. ha- Harry's Cafe de Wheels. Boomtown. I mean, this is that's a Sydney delicacy. An institution down in Woolloomooloo. I mean, I've hardly been there in my life, but I, I imagine some people might think that that's a thing. Speaking of Sydney delicacies, I guess、uh, your music jack ladder over overseas would would sort of be seen as something quite exotic, something that's ever changing. What do people overseas tell you? Firstly, what Australian music is like, you know, what, what it sort of means to them, and what your music.、Um, yeah, well, you would have had some interesting feedback, I'm sure, over the years of,、uh, of your records. My experience of going overseas, you know, in the last five years has been in context of、um, 
you know, people like Kieran Callanan and, and Alex Cameron. And I think that little community has sort of struck a nerve with a certain type of person, particularly in the UK. I, you know, I had people approach me that were like, just going, that's my favorite stuff. Like, I love Donnie and I love you and Kieran and Alex and that's the world that I want to be in. And I don't really understand necessarily what brings it together. It's a skewed kind of perspective on the world. I think I tried to come up with a some sort of term with holiday because holiday is part of that as well. You know, side one, yeah. And we all grew up together in our own ways around each other circling and arrived in in sort of similar points by very different routes but what brings it together is is um is a a, a, maybe like a love of absurd the absurd you know it it, it's hard because it does feel rooted in sort of of personality because when we were growing up you know music indie rock was quite oblique it wasn't Defi- like it was defiant against pop music and maybe there's a celebration of pop music in this kind of thing but it's also done with a you know it's all tongue-in-cheek but it's also in- incredibly um earnest you know post 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 irony is that a thing totally i think about is it you know internationally it's like mac demarco and sean nicholas savage i think have a similar perspective where it's like Almost making fun of how sincere you can be. That comes from Jonathan Richmond, channeled through th- from from those streams. I think Jonathan Richmond through a sort of filter of Roxy Music and and um, Prefab Sprout and bands like that. Like it can't be coincidence that you all come from the same spot, at least for the sake of this argument. Mm. That if you had to apply like a regional lens to it, what could it be? I wonder if as a like as an outsider, as someone who lives in Melbourne, mm. that, you know, if we talk about the pastiche of cities and stuff, like Sydney mm. is obviously this like glamorous kind of glitz and glamour and like go, go, go and almost that kind of like cocaine hecticism. Mm. Yeah, like, Sin City. Yeah, exactly. It's true. It feels like something that all that Donnie and Alex and Kieran and you and Holiday have in common is like you say, almost embracing that and to such a degree and then following it down the rabbit hole that you emerge from the Mm. other side with like an, an element of this of glamour, but also you talking to something that is sort of like real beyond parody. Yeah. It, It almost kind of like pulls out some sort of, new truth to it or something i don't know it's a it's a new ang- it's a new angle on the city that nowhere else has yeah well i think it's also you know growing everyone that i could uh name within that group uh, complete misfits yeah from where they've grown up you know alex grew up in bondi that's <laughs> just doesn't make any sense and uh, kieran and i in avalon and i tell people that i surf and they're genuinely kind of like shocked <laughs> Because of the perception of who they would think that I am. And there is that sort of adapting this sort of like glamorous idea of Sydney just through osmosis, but kind of making fun of it. I think I was making fun of it quite early on. I would, you know, when everyone else was in the like baggy jeans and kind of, you know, band t-shirts in the indie rock kind of late 90s, early 2000s thing. And I would 
dress up a bit, wear a shirt and, and pants. But even that, I was kind of felt like I was somehow subverting that. And now if I look back, I'm like, oh, it kind of was looked like a preppy guy <laughs> that I hated that I was somehow kind of making fun of. The, the Playmates album cover way. sort of speaks to that as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's all it's that weird thing. It's all context, you know, um, and you kind of need to understand where it's come from, which is dangerous, you know, and I, I feel I've never really been that comfortable with the whole thing and I sort of flip around and. The only thing at the end of the day for me is I, I'm I'm very dedicated to songwriting, and I I think everyone would vouch for that. They're all individually really serious craftspeople and and and, and very dedicated to the to the creation of song. And, and yeah. not just that, but kind of finding their own language, yeah, or kind of like unearthing something peculiarly unique to them about it. Yeah, yeah. There's everyone's carving out their own tiny little section of the garden. Mm. Whereas I think it's in that way it's not very communal. You know, with other scenes, if we're thinking regionally, if I think about Melbourne, it feels very much more supportive, and it feels like all the bands play with each other, and there's more of a uniform sound, and there's a there's a movement in that way. Whereas I think with my friends and I, it's everyone's working individually and everyone's very focused on their own identity. And it's, you know, everyone celebrates each other's identity. And maybe that's the interesting thing. It's like a celebration of your own sort of uniqueness, but we don't need to be doing the same thing. Yeah. There's a disparate unity with you guys. Yeah. It's not like, oh, you're using like, this keyboard that we don't use anymore. It's never like a that these kind of stylistic tropes that I feel, you know, unify a collective sound. Mm. Yeah, it's it's rare. When I think about it, I think that's true. But I also wonder if sometimes because it is easy to be surrounded by a lot of like minded people doing a similar thing. Like there'll be a I don't know, like a street festival or something and like a lot of the bands fit pretty neatly together and that's awesome and that's cool but you don't so much get that kind of out outlier kind of um trailblazer or less so it feels because maybe there's a comfort in being a part of a, a gang as well yeah you get to have an awesome music career and you make can make some great records but perhaps less kind of have that as you said before mikey that i i iconoclastic kind of legacy of this, this is me this is who i am like i can't help but be separate and that's just mm. the way it is i think it's also working with limitations and i'd say everyone is you know deeply in awe of someone like alan vega from suicide and it's just that idea that maybe you don't have a great voice so you're not particularly an attractive person but you will do you know use all your skills that you are available to you to <laughs> try and um formulate i guess it's just playing to your strengths but it's also and sort of an amateur approach to pop music or something you know it's and that's where you say this auteur thing because it's it's very um you're sort of overseeing all aspects of it whereas you know a major label kind of pop star 
is taken in and almost shaped and molded by the system and you know that you know these are the stylists that you work with and these are the video directors and you know we're going to cre- create this person when i think about my friends and i it's like very much creating everything uh being aware of the whole process and um being aware of every element of it and sculpting it yourself I'd love to see a festival bill with just all you guys on it. You know, Donnie, Holiday, <laughs> Alex, Kieran, yourself, all jumping around, playing in each other's bands. That would be a dope day. That would be beautiful. Yeah. Well, we That's need the to dream. make this happen. Yeah. Um, we do have some heavy hitters that listen to Hit Different. So, funders, bitch. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> Hurry up. Uh, friends, you can track us down. Track us down. Uh, Marcus Teague is on uh, social media. I am also on social media under Joey Lightbulb. Jacques Ladeur is, uh, and his friends, Michel Gondry, <laughs> he's on uh, socials. More, more importantly, though, with, with Jack, just stream his music, buy it on Bandcamp, buy some merch. Because this record, Hijack, which we're going to talk about in a second, it's a fucking, it's a big deal. I'm really into it. It's a really good mood to get in, a good good sort of crazy headspace to step into. So I'm enjoying that. Um, yes, in just a moment, we're going to be talking to him. But first, this is a bit of music. Back in effect. He looks like he's just walked off the set of Lost Boys via Ghostbusters 2 playing Vigo. He is Jack Ladder, a.k.a. Tim Rogers, transfixing presence, super interesting cat. The person who has taken a two-star review from me better than anyone has ever taken a two-star review in the history of, of cr- critiques. Quick backstory. Mm. I talked to Jack Ladder and I said I was gonna. I did a story on him then I reviewed his record. Which record was this? God, it was a couple of records ago. Playmates. And I texted him after we went out drinking and saw Spencer P. Jones, rest in peace, at the Cherry Bar and said, hey, Jack, I'm reviewing your record. Mm. I'm, I'm not as keen as on it as I was last week. And you just said, go hard. <laughs> and so when I gave him mm. two stars, you said, you literally texted me the next day saying, oh, you could have gone for one. <laughs> and then a few years later, the next record I gave four stars to, and you were like, I'm glad to redeem myself in your eyes, which you don't have to say. You know what I mean? Like, this is just kind of a, the dude mm. you are. You're very... You're a tough cookie. Um, you've also been through rehab. So you've been through a little bit in the last few years, which we're going to discuss all these things. Uh, the record hijack, mm. though, as, as a jump-off point, it's a very fine achievement. It's you know some some six-minute songs on there. There's a lot of strings on there. Our friend Marcus Teague, speaking of reviews, mm. did a very in-depth 800-word review about uh, you as an auteur and how Australian mm. the industry and fans perhaps don't respect and celebrate auteurs as much as we as we should. We are talking today there for, for a very good reason is that we're super interested in you and people out there have asked us to uh, to speak to you as well. When you when you sat down to, to make Hijack, what was sort of the, the first sort of ideas that came to you and tell us about sort of how the identity of the record evolved over time? Well, I hadn't been writing very much because I, I made Blue Poles, the previous album, in 2016, I think, like quite a long time yeah. ago. And then I started touring 2017 because people, I couldn't really get a lot of interest in, in, in Blue Poles. It's a great record. Well, I think I'd burnt my, a lot of bridges because I'd done Playmates and that had been picked up in America by Fat Possum. And you get kind of given your shot. You know, I got given a, a nice booking agent in the States and we went and toured and we just kind of bombed super hard. And the whole campaign fell apart. Came back, tail between my legs started working with Alex Cameron 
and then you know I went to the states and recorded his record Force Witness with him and then I came back and I I started working at doing Blue Poles and it was sort of a fresh start where there was no label again and I could just do what I want um and then I finished it and sent it round and people were like yeah I don't really know about it and it took a, a the next year of touring I met Wise Blood she took me on to a went around Europe with her then I toured around Europe with Alex and then after that it was like terrible and the states were like yeah we want to do it so that happened and then I just kept touring and as it barely dressed locally sorry to bunny but I think barely dressed and barely and barely dressed here yeah and they were like we want to do it and they were really sweet and really supportive and then we did that and it was just impossible to keep the band together I think that's the constant story is just this coming and together and falling apart of the band and everyone having their trajectories and you know I'm kind of doing the bulk of the music on my own and but I love to involve them in it sometimes that just doesn't connect so I started touring solo and then I went hard and and, and I was producing records for other people in um 2019 I did a couple of rec- I did Bad Dreams record in Adelaide and I went to the UK and recorded an album at like Peter Gabriel's Real World Studios with this guy Alan Power. And, I, and then I did another like six weeks in Europe with Alex and then went back to America and it was crazy and I was just losing my mind. What, why and were you I losing had like mind? a new ba- I had a new baby at home, but I just felt compelled to work all the time just to try and get my head just to try and break through a little bit more so that I could uh, tour at a, at a slightly higher level where you start making a bit more money. Just all those kind of things. Just life's stuff piling up on top of me. And then I, you know, I st- probably started drinking a bit too much. Started feeling pretty bad about myself because I, I really couldn't get a leg up. You know, I'm touring, but I'm opening. And, I, and, just, and I was playing piano in Alex's band as well so I'd do my show then playing his band you know it's just a lot of work a lot of um just a, a lot of head noise and, and I and I was just starting to feel very unwell and so I, I a friend of mine had been to rehab uh and it's said you know and I was I was just uh I couldn't stop I, I felt like a shark like I couldn't even on days off, I was driving into the city and back. I just had to keep it was in perpetual state of movement. So I needed somewhere where I could just stop. Um, and so I went to the rehab thing. And, um, and then I got out of there and I, and I had a clear head to write. You know, And there's a bunch of songs just started coming to me. Not because of rehab necessarily, but just from having the pause and being able to have thoughts enter my head again. And to, to go to the place where the songs are. And, and then, then the world stopped. And then I had time to, to make the album. Sorry, that's a very roundabout way to try and get to the point. No, no, no. Don't apologize. This is, this is, this is why we want to join a podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you were in the Blue Mountains when the fires started. Is that right? And I guess yeah, we're talk, we talking late 2019. Now I can't. I can yeah. barely remember the timeline of the last two years. <laughs> what had happened was my partner had got an artist residency in South Korea. She was commissioned to do a, a big um, outdoor environmental artwork, 
and she was supposed to go there for six weeks something i also had a two like six week tour of europe with alex booked around the same time so i went to korea with her for two weeks with our daughter who was like eight months old eight months old at that point and then she had another friend come over from england and i went to amsterdam or something from korea to start the tour with alex i think it was when she was there the fires started happening and then she came home and the fires were getting worse and i was still in europe mm-hmm. and so i came home and the fires were getting closer and closer and um and then i had a bunch of shows when i got home and it was yeah it was just such a stressful time and then we we're thinking about how we we're gonna evacuate our place mm. and then all sorts of things went down and i went back on tour in america and then it started getting really bad and um she went to stay with my parents in in avalon and um and i came back and and i went up there to like move stuff out of the house um try and get on my instruments and and some you know artworks and stuff and um i had this headache and i just like went to sleep for two days wow and i was just laying laying there thinking the fires are just going to come up this gully and i'm just going to get burn up in the house and i was like i just don't even have the energy to get out of here was it um, like a stress re- reaction perhaps or something uh yeah it was st- probably stress probably something to do with the drink mm. yeah I, I felt i was like maybe i've got meningococcal i couldn't like my neck had gone all stiff i couldn't move my head without it just aching and mm. um yeah we got all the shit out of the house and um it did come close. It did. It didn't. Didn't burn the house down or anything. But it was just a, a very present uh, fear and, and and danger throughout for for quite a few months there. Hard to compartmentalize something as heavy as that as well in your mind. And then I think I went to rehab and it actually got even worse. Then while you're in rehab, um, you got some some great lyrics. Uh, Frank's here for ice. Daniel for blow. Rehab must be sort of manner for for a songwriter. Yeah. I mean, I felt really weird about writing that song because you're not really supposed to disclose any um, information. It's a very personal, private world. It was actually Daniel was there for ice and Frank was there for blow, so it's fine. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, pretty close to the bone there. You know, I was expecting to go to a, a rehab where you just get a room and you're kind of like in a hotel and you prescribe drugs for depression and you stop you know you can't access things and that's why i thought rehab was and i think it is for certain certain ones but this one was like a lot of group therapy you basically in group therapy three four hours a day and there's a lot of um lectures on health and um different types of um, ways of understanding relationships and all, all sorts of things. that you, you go through a whole program. I guess I, I, it was just so foreign to me and I just went with it. A lot of people like push against it. They go in there and they don't want to be there and they try and do things to be naughty boys <laughs> in the rehab and go outside for ciggies and stuff. But I, I, I was just so dead, so like so fried that I was just happy to be go along with it. But the really sweet thing I think that spurred the the song on 
was that idea on a Saturday night you're allowed to watch a movie? Because I thought I'd just stay in my room and read books and watch movies and... Yeah, but you're not allowed to even bring in fiction books. You're only allowed to read self-help books. <laughs> I have my like, po- poetry confiscated on entry. Wow. Uh, yeah, and they vet the movies. So, like, I remember watching, like, Finding Nemo the first weekend with, like, 50, you know, drug addicts. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, people, these people, like, just crying, you know. And it was really... Uh, an amazing kind of experience and then you know we we watched the the next week someone got to pick and they picked the holiday starring jude law and, and um and cameron diaz mm-hmm. and um kate winslet and jack black i believe and uh, you know all those movies are really interesting because they're written by a lot of the writers in hollywood that have been through 12-step programs yeah. once you see behind that curtain you know, a lot like Groundhog Day is also written from like a features a lot on the record on Hijack. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's it follows a twelve step program. Um, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous thing. Um, in in terms of like, I can't remember what the steps are, but you yep. know, like making amends yep. and, and you know, developing your own personal skills and you know, uh, you know, instead. It, the th- thing that's interesting about that is, you know, he stops trying to pretend to be the person that he thinks other people mm. think he should be. And he just focuses on trying to be a kind, interesting person that people will like because of who he is, you know. And and that, uh, that seems to be deeply embedded in uh, an alcoholic's or a drug addict's state of mind a lot of the time. Um not that I know a huge amount about it. It feels funny because when you're in there for three weeks, it feels like the universe shifts. And then after a year or two years, it's like it was just three weeks. <laughs> you know? so, there's, a, there's a lot more, lot more to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I was looking through some of my notes that I, that I made when I was writing about your record. And I found this one, which I think felt a bit on, on the nose to explore. But... One, mm. one of my notes was um, off screen, the album is a bit of a reckoning with the character of who Tim Rogers is mm. because the invention of Jack Ladder required adopting a persona to mm. not be Tim Rogers. And that yeah. is such a fun thing to explore when you're, you know, you've got free range to kind of go through music and have a music career. And that's part of the fun of writing songs is like accessing parts of your psyche that you don't get to do on a daily basis sort of thing. But, I guess the 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 note being is there a point where that runs out? The last few records have probably fought with that. I think I've wrestled with that idea of identity throughout my whole thing. Um and this idea that I actually have a character mm. or I even do have a separate identity that Jack Ladder is somehow separate from who I am as a person. I think there's a lot to do with, you know, I studied design and I was really interested in, in a specific sort of, I, I made film posters and stuff. So when I started doing design for myself, I was tapping into those things, which probably presented like creating a, a, a filmic world, or a visual world around the music. Mm. And that was a very like natural thing for me to do. But I don't think it, I hadn't really thought about who the character was 
you know, and I just tried to hide in the songs. And then gradually as people surrounded it because they believed in it, these characters like Kieran appear and, you know, and then he is, you know, I mean, it's very much himself, but he, you know, he has a character and then Donnie's very much a character. And I think all these people start to reflect and refract off me. And then I'm like the straight guy in the band. <laughs> it's that Seinfeld thing where I'm, you know, I'm, it's my show, but I'm sort of like in the, <laughs> the least likable sort of, uh, um, kind of i'm the jerk in the show <laughs> and, I, and, I'm, and I, I like that but i think it's confusing for an audience mm. and i think i've very willingly and also maybe unconsciously pushed my audience away or made it made things difficult for them to access me making the new album i was i felt very free of everything i think previously on the other albums i'd really considered how the band factored into it but when i was writing this album you know i was the end of my publishing deal i didn't have a label deal i didn't i parted ways with my management so i had basically nothing in terms of attachment to the industry and you know i'd been through the rehab thing i'd felt cleared in some way (laughs) you know i'd done a lot of touring which is something i'd always kind of battled with because you know, I never had those avenues when I was younger seemed really hard to access. It feels like everyone does big tours of America and Europe now, whereas when I started in like 2005, that was not necessarily a, a, a thing that every Australian band had access to. Mm. So I made this record and it was essentially a, a solo record and I was just, it was going to be just keyboards and and me singing and then I guess because of the COVID thing and, and travel restrictions, I, I thought that I would go to America and, and record. I was hoping to do it with Rado and, and Wiseblood and do it in the studio there. But I thought, you know, maybe it's best just to do it here. And, you know, Lawrence had been making a lot of records and making really interesting music. Yeah. And he, he's got a huge head for music. He knows my music really well. Mm. If anyone knows what my character is, I'm Lawrence would probably be able to tell you. <laughs> he can um, ghostwrite your biography. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't, that's the hardest thing. And when you say this, going back to the question about the persona and whether this is a, some sort of reckoning with the persona, I don't know what the persona is, but I'm, I'm, I'm in conflict with it. Mm. And this record is, um, somehow, uh, coming to terms with being a person trying to, trying to be a real boy. <laughs> Yo, the real ones know. In Leaving Eden, <sighs> you say, I was voted least likely to succeed. And I mean, obviously, this could be mm. the third person, whatever. I think with you, there's always, mm. for me, it never feels like it's in the third person. It's very much you're in on the joke and you are the joke, but you are also a serious artist. And that's, I think, why I've always been drawn to your work. When did you feel mm. sort of the most success in your career? And sort of, you know, how do you define that in your mind? Is it, you know, is it playing it? I mean, Meredith, I know you played in the morning a few years ago, but it was a really kind of affecting affecting kind of a moment because you know meredith you've got yeah. it's in the morning you still got five thousand people down there you've got another tw- seven thousand people in their tents going this sounds pretty cool mm. so what, what are those moments in your career that you've uh, had that kind of like that's pretty cool that was a terrifying moment <laughs> and and it, it was unified you know we were slammed for that show 
on the mess and noise uh, forum. I remember <laughs> talking to one of the founders here, Marcus Teeks, one of the founders of Mess and Noise. Ac- ac- <laughs> accidentally, yeah. No, I remember Kieran left his pedals on the um, baggage carousel at the airport before we drove out to Meredith. So, <laughs> really, that was that was a, that was a real real tricky show. I mean, success. One of my my proudest moments was. Um, Actually, I, I played bass with Bill Callahan cool. on his tour here, and, and he's one of my favorite songwriters. Mm-hmm. He released an album of it, uh, the live recording. It's like live in Melbourne. Unreal. Uh, it's called Rough Travel for a Rare Thing, and it's like I played bass on a Bill Callahan Sick. record. It's insane. Um, but, you know, it, a lot of people that, you know, it seems maybe not the, the, the best point uh, talking about that identity stuff and also the band mm. is that and you know you finding yourself as the straight guy in this band of avatars <laughs> mm. <laughs> um that you know jack ladder and the dreamlanders has become a thing and you mm. know, the, the dreamlanders are this incredibly unique awesome band full of characters but also as you say they're not always around to play with you and and be that for you Mm. i think i read you saying somewhere else that kind of becomes an issue when you want to do a tour or whatever that you know no one can step in and sound like kieran j callanan on guitar and that sort of thing does there have Mm. to be like you must have tried to sort of like brainstorm a future or a way of playing shows without those guys that still is true to what you want to achieve yeah i mean we're looking to do shows with orchestra next year that's one way help yeah. fill up that space this hijack lends it to lends itself to that big time because of all the strings on it yeah no i think the pr- proud moment was when we, we did the hertzville shows this year i thought that was great we played at the forum and yeah you know we had the vinyl reissued and there were people there and to make a record and have it survive for 10 mm. years and people still care i think that's that made me feel quite um uh, I was happy. <laughs> what is this? What is <laughs> no, this emotion? Yeah. <laughs> What's this feeling? Um, ha, ha, it starts with a H. Yeah. Ha. <laughs> I know they said it in Finding Nemo. I'm just remember. Yeah, that's a dope record. I, be happy. I fell in love to that record. You know, me and my partner, who's now downstairs, two daughters. You know, like it's a really powerful moment in time. Yeah, I mean that's a beautiful thing you ha- you wrote in the little book. We haven't made the Hurt book. Yeah. Do you have a copy of the Hurt book? I don't. I've never seen it, but I know. I, oh, I, put in, I need to send it to yeah, you. Yeah, man. I really put in. Like, it's beautiful. Yeah, no, it's, it comes because you're. That's right. I wrote about the fact that because we had Jack Ladder Hurtsville, the kind of the block mount thing, and you had these Mona Lisa eyes. So wherever I go in the house, you'd always be watching me. <laughs> and I couldn't tell whether you were wow. smiling or, 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 oh. or sort of gurning or grinning or, or, or you know. Yeah. So many just sort of different emotions. You're brooding like a motherfucker. And uh, you're watching us fall in love, so I appreciate your uh, your guidance there, sir. It's oh, such a it, mu- it must have been kind of um, I guess one of the the rare things that like celebrating a ten year old album affords is that you get to do it right. Like I remember seeing you when yeah. when you launched Hertzville back in the day, and yeah. it was a mishmash of wasn't right. different bands, band members, and kind of like yeah. you know trying to. It must have felt in the years past that that you were bummed that 
you couldn't sort of like almost weirdly rise to the occasion of this own of your own record. <laughs> yeah, I I was deeply lost in the Hertzville thing, like making the record really zonked me, and I spent so long on it comparatively to what I thought it was going to be. I sort of had to learn. How, that was just a real learning experience. I, I had to learn how to make a record like that. I, and when it came time to tour it, I, the way I was thinking about it was like, I have to recreate all these sounds that are on the record. And, you know, I had like two vibrato pedals on every synth patch. And, mm -hmm. you know, so there'd be this cross modulation thing. And I was like, how am I going to recreate that line? Mm. And it's just like, these are the, not the things that I needed to be thinking about. And my manager at the time really didn't like Lawrence and Donnie mm -hmm. and he just wanted it to be Kieran and I. And then he put his his friend Bo in the band, who I love Bo, it's great. But he wasn't Donnie yeah. and you know, and I think we had Cess from Mess Hall. That's right. He was playing drums and he's great, but a very different feeling to Lawrence and, and, and Nick Kennedy played drums at one point as well, didn't he? Oh, yeah, we had Nick Kennedy. That was the next round. Yeah. And that was like, we had members of Ghoul, like playing bass and guitar. And, you know, I just couldn't really, I had this thing where with Kieran, it's like the songs are really easy to play. They're like three chords repeating. Mm. So anyone can play them. And it was that kind of thing. It's just a means to an end. We're going on tour. Yeah, we'll just get the backing band, to, the support band to be our backing band. It'll be fine. And Kieran has that approach as well, where it's just like so much belief in his ability to command a room that, you know, it doesn't really necessarily matter who else is on stage. <laughs> I've seen that. And, it's, you know, I think that's a be that belief in the ego as opposed to that, you know, a unified kind of like a band mentality. Sure. But we never really rehearsed very much. <laughs> it was always just like learning how it works on stage and because Donnie and Lawrence are incredibly intuitive players and Kieran as well that you know it was we had a looseness to the way that we played that made the band great and then having people play very simple parts but not play them very confidently or not be able to move around very well mm. meant that it was just a very plotty undynamic kind of you know str the show struggled at that point and I didn't I couldn't even even really understand the the power of the songs at that point mm. you know because i was fo focusing on these tiny elements of like when the tom <laughs> overdubs hit in a certain song like they need to be this certain sound and i was just i was gone so 10 10 years later we go into a rehearsal room and play hertzville for the first time as a band with no backing track and nothing and it was just that was like the best we'd ever played it. It was like, oh, okay, this is I'm like it's so it's so easy to play this music now because we, you know, there is a formula to it with the way everyone plays together, and it was the sound of that record, but we didn't even know it at the time. And then, and then knowing that when you play it, that you know these songs have become part of some people's lives, and that they, you know, yeah. they're coming to the show to hear the seventh track or whatever. Yeah, what a moment. Yeah, that's really powerful and I, I felt really uh, taken aback by that Before, particularly performing at the forum that was really special mm. Mm. a huge achievement and I remember the, just the vibe and the build up to that show 
people were super excited. I had to host a trivia night. So, but like I'd, I had six people from a trivia team leave my trivia night to go and see you. I'm like, where are you going? Jack, oh, like, oh, no worries. Go, go, go. <laughs> Hurry. <laughs> Get there. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But I think we felt vindicated in some way because the album was kind of, it got panned. Did it? Critically by some people. Uh, yeah, it got like two stars in the Sydney Morning Herald. <laughs> but I love that. I love when records are divisive. Like I didn't think it would be like that. I was totally naive going to that. I thought I'd just made a cool, great album. And history and shows you did. I remember at, well, Aaron from Spunk was like, people are going to like either love this or like throw shit at this throw shit at you in the street and i was like why would they do that it's a good album and then you know i was met with some some criticism was beastie boys was it paul's boutique or check your head i think it was paul's boutique wasn't it that no one cared about at the time didn't sell any any copies oh. and it was just way ahead of its yeah. time and i'm going to ask you in a moment in the bonus episode about that great brian wilson i just wasn't made for these times you know that that quote just to see whether you where you where you sit with yeah. that but in the meantime, we need to do a bit of a, a wrap-up of the show as we go into the bonus episode. We have discussed today Travis Scott's Astro World disaster and how we can sort of avoid that in the future. Uh, Marcus T took us regional because he's an OG, he's an a regional gangster, and uh, I've got a craving for Japanese food right now too. And then young Jack Ladder talk us, talked us through, um, yeah, these various stages of his career and ma- mainly about Finding Nemo. Uh, I think that was really the takeaway there is... Finding Nemo is a surprisingly emotional film, and you will need to go and watch it again. In a moment, friends, the bonus episode. Hey, Jack, would you like to stick around for the bonus episode where I call you Jack and Marcus, Marcus calls you Tim? <laughs> sure. I mean, I'm here already. <laughs> Why not? I think my thing's, my thing's still recording. Thank you to the co-host of the guest. Say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye, audience. We love you. <laughs>